Hey guys, thank you for tuning in to episode 45 of Sheer Crime. I'm Amy. And I'm Kenzie. And today we cover the case of the murder of Dr. Teresa Seavers in the series Killer Cases as seen on Hulu. Teresa Seavers returns home one evening from a family get-together and is met by two men wielding a hammer inside of her Florida home. With little to no evidence left behind, investigators could not tell who had been responsible. But a call comes in on a tip line that leads police to a small town in Missouri and to two men who are identified as friends with the good doctor's husband, Mark Seavers. Evidence begins to mount as phone history, GPS mapping, and video surveillance place these men in Florida on the night of Teresa's murder. But soon, the evidence begins to point to her husband as the mastermind in a murder for hire, of course, motivated by money problems and an affair. How original. Will this husband get away with murder, or will he be held responsible for his crime? Let's dive in. Hello. Um, it's been forever. I feel like it has. No, it has. Has like, it been over two weeks? Probably. It's been over two weeks. It has because the last time we, I was here on a Monday, right? Yeah, and we were supposed to record on Friday last week, but we got that snowstorm. Yes, yes. And it just got it to be crazy. Screwed us all up. It screwed everything <laughs> up. Well, how are you? I screwed up my back the other day. I let my little dog sleep with me. Yeah. In bed horrible decision really up all night tossing and turning because he will not move he is like a brick he's only like 10 pounds but he literally won't move he'll just sit there like a dead dog in the bed and now my back is like kinked all the way down my right hand side it's horrible can i can i tell you something (laughs) welcome to 30 welcome to 30 if that isn't just the epitome of no longer being in your 20s. It happened four days after I turned 30. Uh-huh. Yep. Sure did. That's that's how it works. Oh, my gosh. I'm. Uh, he's done. He's done in my bed. I'm not allowing him in my bed anymore. What made you decide to let him in your bed? Anyway. He, they come in our room. The dogs will come in our room periodically. Oh. Our bigger dog stays on the floor. Well, I know that huge. sounds mean. But the only reason is because my husband's allergic to her. Oh. So we can't have her fur, like, in our bed. But our Yorkie is hypoallergenic. He's fine. Gotcha. Usually we don't have an issue. He'll he'll sleep at the very bottom of the bed and we won't even like touch him. Yeah. But for some reason he needed to sleep right in between my legs the other night. Ew. And he did not move all night. And so I was like tossing and turning sideways. I was trying to lay on my back, but then, you know, I didn't have enough room because yeah. he was right in the middle. I'm like, what is happening? Ugh. And then I was too tired to get up or to get him off the bed. Sure. So I just let it go for the whole night until I woke up in the morning and I couldn't even look right. I'm like, this is so bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, it's all downhill from here. No. <laughs> <laughs> the pain is just beginning. It truly is. Um, well, with that being said, happy birthday. Well, happy birthday to you. Thank you. We oh. both had our birthdays last week. Yes, we did. It's so exciting. It's so fun. I, I feel like it's just a fun week for us. 
It is a fun week. I mean, <laughs> you know, with a newborn now, there's not like much fun that we could sure. go do. And last year with 2020, we both kind of got screwed out of birthdays. Right. right. But uh, but yeah, so you're officially 30 now. I am. I'm yes. officially closer to 40 than I am to 30. I'm yeah. 36 yep. now. Which my husband looked at me last night. He's like, that's so weird. I'm like, <laughs> I know. He's like, I don't feel like we're mid-30s. I'm like, I know. Yeah, yeah. It goes quick. It's really sad. I can't even believe that it's almost 2022. And I don't know if I've said this before, but I still feel like it's 2020. Like, I don't even feel like it's been a whole year in 2021. And now we're literally a few weeks away from New Year's Eve. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I'm not ready. (laughs) No, I agree with you. I, I don't know what happened to this last year. And yet, it's funny because... You know, with being pregnant, you feel like you're pregnant forever. Right, right. But now I look back and I'm like, what happened? Yeah. How did that year go by so fast? Yep. But yet it felt like five years in it. Well, and I think too, like right after having a baby, like your maternity leaves goes really, really quick. Like way too quick. So you probably feel like it was so long. It was nine months, but your three months of maternity leave just like flew by. A blink of an eye. Yes. Yep. And it's gone and you're back to work and it's like you never had a baby. Yeah, I know. Now it's like he's four months old and smiling and laughing. and cute. Oh my God, he's so cute. Yes. So fun. So fun. I'm obsessed with him. I can't even help it. All right. So you brought over something to drink today so that we had a little bit of a break from wine. Yes, I did. Um, Not that we need a break from wine. (laughs) No, we don't. Actually, I just ordered a lot of wine from Total Wine because they deliver. And they deliver to my house. It was amazing. Yeah. We're... I didn't know that. In Woodbury, you can order and they'll deliver it through DoorDash. Oh my gosh. It's amazing. Oh. So amazing. Okay. Yeah. Definitely try it. Okay. Um, But we're going to do Truly Mangoes today. It's, again, we had this watermelon kiwi in there and I am not a watermelon fan. I remember you saying that. Yeah. I was like, we're not going to do that one. And this was the only other one I had that had two of them. So (laughs) this is what we're doing today. Hey, works for me. All right. So should we pop those tops? Let's do it. Wow, that's mangoey. That's very mangoey. It's very good. I mean, it smells a lot like mango. You don't even have to taste it. No. It's very nice. Yeah. Is it weird? I thought it was going to be slightly sweeter, and I don't know why. I think because the last sip of a Truly I've had was like around Thanksgiving, or maybe it was Halloween, and my cousin Shauna had those Truly Punch. Yep. And I had a sip of one of those. Those are so sweet. Those are very sweet. Yes. Very, very sweet. Nothing like a standard Truly. A yeah, standard no. Truly is more like a White Claw, but I don't feel like it's as, like, Sultry. fizzy. Yeah. I can't do White Claw. No, me neither. No. No. Ew. No, so, I'm into Trulies and Vizzies. Those are probably my two favorite seltzers. And Crook- Bud Light seltzer. What Crook and Marker? Oh, and Crook and Marker. Holy what shit. What are you saying? I forgot. Yeah. We haven't had a Crook and Marker in probably well, nine months to a year. Definitely over a year. Because right around this time, I was pregnant. Oh, my God. I found out on Thanksgiving. That's what we need to have next. All right. Crook and Marker. Crook and Marker. That's we what we're doing. Back. <laughs> gotta do it bringing it back that's my shit that is <laughs> that, my favorite that is my above favorite. all else right <laughs> that's my favorite <laughs> maybe they'll have some new ones yeah they probably do we'll see okay let's uh get to what we came here to do talk about some murder all and right. uh why don't you start us off okay so 
This documentary, again, is from the series on Hulu called Killer Cases, and it's called The Doctor is Dead. And right off the bat, we meet a gentleman named Michael Braun, who's with the news press, and he tells us that Teresa was a really well-liked doctor, and she had her own holistic physician's practice. During this documentary, they show us video clips of Dr. Teresa Seavers during speeches and what looks like commercials for her practice. That's all I could say. She's like sitting on the edge of a couch explaining what she does, how yeah. she, what she believes in, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it looked like a commercial almost. And in one video, we hear her state, quote, I don't know about you, but I'm not ready for postmortem. I want to enjoy my life like it is now, end quote. Which, I couldn't agree more. Which I found to be just a little spooky, right? right? Because she didn't die too long after this. I mean, it right. didn't look, she looked the same age. Yeah. So it couldn't have been that much longer after saying something like that. So it was just a little spooky to me. Yep. At the age of 46, Dr. Teresa Seavers was found brutally murdered in the kitchen of her home in Bonita Springs, Florida. We meet Cynthia Ross, who's the prosecutor, and she tells us that it was an extremely brutal crime that occurred in a low crime area. People in the area became really upset and worried for their own safety. Oh, for sure. Because it's, I mean, she seemed to be like everybody's friend. So to have something like that happen to her, now people are thinking, well, what the fuck? And it looked to be a very, like high-end type of neighborhood. Oh, well, she's a doctor. Yes, very wealthy people, big houses, an area that you typically don't see crimes like this. But that should be a first red flag then, right? Like, clearly it's probably someone that she knows. You'd think so. Or close to her, because things like that don't usually happen in a neighborhood like that. Yeah. Next, we meet Carmen Marcino. He's the sheriff of Lee County, Florida. He explains that she was a well-known doctor in the area that helped out many different people, so he started getting calls from all over, calling to say that they knew her or that she had helped them through something or they knew someone that she had helped, so on and so forth. And they they were worried. People could not believe what had happened to her. Now, the last time she was seen alive was at the Fort Myers airport the night before her murder. We next meet David Levitt, who's the detective. And they saw her on surveillance video in the airport and learned that she was returning home from a family gathering in Connecticut for her mom's birthday. Her husband, Mark, and two daughters, Josephine and Carmela, stayed back in Connecticut when she had to go home. Right. She was kind of the breadwinner of the family. She made a lot of money. She needed to get back to her practice to make sure she could help all of her patients and all the obligations she had back at home. Oh, I'm sure. But the day she was supposed to be back at work, she never showed. And this was not like her at all. This was way out of her character. So people were worried pretty quickly. Right. It did not take long. David goes on to tell us that some of the employees at her practice start texting her husband to let him know that Teresa had not yet arrived at work. Did you find it kind of weird that they would have his phone number? I did find that weird. Now, the only thing is, it is her practice. So yeah. she she owns it. So maybe she had her own set of emergency contacts maybe. listed. And I'm sure they probably tried to contact her first. Yeah. Didn't get a response. Didn't get a text back. Didn't get a call back. Whatever. And they're like, well, the next person we would need to call is Mark. Yeah. So I'm assuming... It was like an emergency contact form they had. I mean, I hope so. Otherwise, and he was listed. But it was kind of strange. Kind of strange. You don't hear that very often. Yeah. And they didn't talk about contacting her first. 
No. You know, they just went right to, like, contacting Mark, so that was interesting. Mark Seavers then calls their next-door neighbor, Dr. Mark... Padrius? Padritus? 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 Padrit... Dr. Dr. Mark P. Padritus? Padritus? Padritus. Padritus? Fuck. Nope. We're trying. Dr. Mark P. By the way, that all stays in. All stays in. We're trying here, guys. So Dr. Mark P. to ask if he can go and check on her to see if everything's okay. He ends up being the first person to find Teresa, and we hear a 911 call. 911, what's your emergency? Mark responds, quote, I'm at a friend's house. He's out of town, and I came here to check on his wife, and she's dead on the floor, and she's bashed in the back of the head, and she's cold. She's dead cold, end quote. Okay, I didn't like how he said she's dead cold. Like, that really just gave me a bad visual. Yeah. I mean, it's never a a good... doctor, though. It's never a good visual, but, like, to hear him say dead cold? Yeah. I know. I just picture... It gave me the creeps. Yep. (laughs) And we don't... Obviously, we don't see pictures, but it literally just made me, like, my skin crawl. I was like, oh, no. (laughs) I cannot imagine. That is... Okay, as much as I love true crime, finding a dead body is literally the scariest thing. Uh, it's the yeah. biggest thing of my nightmares. I can't imagine because, you know, they always blur out these pictures and like they don't tell you that sometimes people still have their eyes open or like their mouths open and stuff like freaky stuff, you guys. Right. Like, <laughs> or like a rigor mortis, put them in like a weird position. Oh, no. Yes. no, but yet why am I always like looking for dead bodies? <laughs> In my mind, they're everywhere. And I just haven't looked hard enough because they're always yeah. on the side of the road. Right. Always. Whenever you see a garbage bag, if you there know is it's a, a dead shoe body. on the side of the road by itself, there's a dead body somewhere nearby that's missing that shoe. I know. It's it's horrible, but I'm still like They usually say though, oh. like any time that somebody does come across like I almost said a dead body in the wild. <laughs> like <laughs> but but if you were to stumble across like a dead body, right? right? Like right. somebody who tried to conceal somebody, let's say on like a hiking path. Yep. They always say that the people who find it thought it was a mannequin. Right. Which... There's that's such a common thing that you hear. And I and I would assume it's because our brains just really can't go there. Right. Like or first. don't want to go there. Right. But again, why would a mannequin be in the woods? That's the thing. That's even more weird than a dead body, honest to God. <laughs> to find a mannequin yes. in the woods like Black you wooden. just wouldn't no you know i just feel like there's not enough mannequins for that there's to like not. happen <laughs> there's not no one's stealing them and putting them in the woods like i'm just oh, saying man. No. it's the scariest thing to me i i don't i can't even fathom if that were ever to happen like it just scares me or even like animals like i don't even want to see my animals no dead on the floor i I don't think I can do with the the rigor mortis. That is probably the freakiest thing to me. Yeah, is that they become these like stiff, just stiff. Yeah. you know what I mean. You can't move them really. Yeah. And, ooh. No, they're gross. Oh my god. Okay, but like side note, do you remember being in beauty school and having all the mannequin heads and having to oh, bring yeah. them to and from school? Yep. My favorite <laughs> favorite thing was to have them all in my trunk. Yep. And just open up that trunk at like Walmart <laughs> in the parking lot or some shit. Oh yeah. Because. 
Always. And sometimes I would take some some hair from like the long hair yep. mannequin and just kind of, you know, pull it on the outside and then shut my trunk down. Oh, <laughs> what people must have thought. Over. I just wanted to get pulled over so bad. What do you mean? What, what are you, you talking about? Officer. I bought I bought it. I, I bought those things I that bought are in that the trunk. <laughs> and her four sisters. That is great. Now, Cynthia Ross, our prosecutor, comes back and says that nothing appeared to have been taken from the home. Like, there was the house was not ransacked. Nothing looked like it was out of place. The only thing was that she was found dead on the floor. Right. That was the only thing and that was really out of place. by her own hand. Right. And there was nothing to really indicate what the motive was for this murder. Because, again, that's kind of what they always see. Like, do they have valuables in the house? And if you're in a richer neighborhood like that, they probably do have more valuables in their house. And you would think that you would see right. the house completely torn apart. Jewelry boxes. They'd be looking for any sort of safe or electronics or TVs or whatever it is. They didn't see any of that. Right. And I'm guessing she has probably a pretty large rock on her finger. Right. None of that was even missing. It was all there. We meet our other detective, Mike Downs, and he says that upon his first observation, he noticed that she sustained severe blunt force head trauma. She was in a pool of her own blood. He could also tell that there was a struggle and it did not happen quickly. And that, that's another thing. Like, I just hate even picturing that. that They know, and it's probably due to where the injuries are. Mm -hmm. Like, she fought back. Like, if if there's injuries on their hands, if... If it is like a blunt force trauma to your head and you see multiple wounds, maybe they were trying to move and trying to like get out of the situation. It just breaks my heart. I can't imagine that. No. We just did one where someone also was hit in the head with a hammer. I I literally. Nope. How could you do that as a human being? Like something has to disconnect in your brain. I just don't understand like how you can like rationally be able to leave and be like, oh, yeah, this is all good. I don't think they're Nobody. rational people, that's for sure. Oh, I just, I, I can't, I can't get it. Can't no. understand. No. Well, the case was assigned to Lee County Sheriff's detectives, Mike Downs and David Lebed. Now, they tell us that there is no obvious, you know, smoking gun and that everyone at this point was a suspect. They started looking into any person that could possibly be connected to Teresa. Who does her hair? Who does her nails? You know, who... Does her lawn care? What's her housekeeper's name? Anything and everything was on the table for them at this point. Well, right. Again, it's so out of left field. They didn't even understand why anyone would want to hurt her. So they had to start from nothing. Right. And talk to everyone. Yep. They said that at first nothing stuck out. But later, they learned that she had a very, quote unquote, strong personality and could sometimes rub people the wrong way. I can relate to that. <laughs> I, I get that. Well, and we know so many. I feel like I know so many people that are like that, right? Well, and that you, just I have feel their like own. Successful per- people are like that for sure. And to me, I don't know if that's really a red flag as to why someone would get murdered, unless no. you were doing shady things like right something under the table that you told someone you'd pay them this and you didn't, or you know what I mean. I don't know. I'm I'm thinking that it just would not even be. I don't know. Again, they're probably grasping at straws, but I just don't think that that would be the only reason someone would go after her because of her strong personality. There's so many people like that that don't get murdered. You know what I mean? And a lot that should. (laughs) (laughs) 
There was a theory that she'd been targeted for being known as a holistic doctor. Lieutenant David Lebed says that a group of people known as web sleuths took a big interest in this case because at around the same time, there were a couple of other states where other holistic doctors had been dying prematurely. And basically, they had kind of come up to about five to six holistic health doctors that were killed or died mysteriously in 2015. And the theory was that they had all been murdered. That is so strange to me. Um, like, do what you is... see what's going on in our government? I'm not so sure that's not I just fact. Well, I mean, if it's, okay, if it's something like that, then uh, it could be anything. But if it's just, like, random people killing these people because they're know, holistic right? doctors, it's like, who the fuck cares? Like, <laughs> right. if you want to go see a holistic doctor, do it. Like, if, do it. if it's going to help your symptoms because nothing else has, yeah. do it. It's super weird. Why would people, like, be out to get these holistic doctors? If anyone knows that answer, please let us know. <laughs> well, Michael Braun from the news press actually says that the theory behind that theory was that they'd been murdered because they had possibly a cure for something like cancer or something else that the government didn't want to disclose. Oh, shit. That's right. Yeah. Of course, he says this turned out not to be true at all. However, hmm. is it not true? I don't know about that. We don't know because everything is, you know, you know all locked up in these tight little boxes. Cancer is one of those things. I know cancer can be so many different types of cancer. Oh, right. So many yeah. different ways, right? right? I totally get it. But there's so many things that we have found cures for and or things that can help you with your longevity in life and like live a decent life, right? Such as AIDS and things like that. We've done things in this world that you can live a very healthy life having AIDS and be fine. Yep. But we've never found a cure for cancer. And the only thing that's working is chemotherapy, which sure, it it has saved many people life. But it can also be detrimental to people's health right. as well. So it's like, hmm, I don't know. That theory, I'm like, I don't well, feel like it's such a. <laughs> I don't, th- yeah, I don't think it's so much of a, like a speculation or like a conspiracy yep. like it could be. Mm, I think there's a little bit of truth to that. I would agree. I think people are getting paid under the table or. I'm just going to say, I've learned a lot from TikTok and they're <laughs> saying that that could be true. Yeah. I, I've actually believed that for years. Oh, same. For years. I'm like, I don't, there are so many smart people in this world. I don't know how they haven't found at least one. Right. One. Right. A single. You know what I mean? Like something that could work. Yeah. But you I don't, don't make money off healthy people. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. Now, to be thorough, detectives conducted interviews with everybody, including Teresa's husband, Mark, once he returned from Connecticut. Oh, yeah, for sure. Of course they would. Cynthia Ross reminds us that, of course, the spouse is always looked at as a main suspect in these types of cases. It's always the husband. It's always the husband. (laughs) And in this case, the spouse was thousands of miles away with an airtight alibi on the night that she was murdered. So, I mean, it looks like it could be completely impossible, right? I mean, obviously, he was not there. Right. When it actually occurred. Right. Now, we see some interview footage of Mark in the, like, interrogation room. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say, even without them, we're going to hear a little bit more about it. Even without their input on how they felt he was acting, he looked super strange to me. Very sketch. I just did not believe most of what was coming out of his mouth. It seemed over the top. Yes. 
Oh, thousand percent. When he, there, there is this moment when he like shoves his fist into the table and he's, and he's like screaming and crying. And I'm like, what is happening? I agree. Why is he doing that? Like, it was so weird. But like, there is theories again that we'll go into as to why detectives think he did that. Right. I mean, it was all kind of an act. Like he wanted to like make it look like he was just beside himself right but i'm sorry you did not take an acting class because you suck (laughs) you suck at this i just like i vividly remember that little part in the documentary where he like does his fist at the table it is like the weirdest thing it's so aggressive i got secondhand embarrassment from that moment (laughs) i couldn't even stop myself from just cringing i'm like you sir stop doing that stop it right now (laughs) oh god in this footage we do hear mark stating how he felt pathetic for not stopping this from happening to Teresa. which like that sounds weird too because if you're thousands of miles away how could you have right and the word pathetic i mean he is but let's not even go there but in that scenario such a weird way to phrase it right it's super weird right And then he's asking for details like the time of her death and was she tortured, things like that. Basically, it was too early, of course, for detectives to know that information. They hadn't fully done the autopsy yet, but he was obviously acting very distraught at this time. Mm -hmm. And then he says, quote, she had so much to offer the world. Everyone says this about their wife. It should have been me, end quote, which, yeah. It I mean, should have it been. Should you. Have been you. It absolutely. You are a thousand percent correct. Yeah. By the way, can we just like take a second and talk about the fact that like Teresa was like a solid nine, and he's like barely a four. Yeah. It was very weird. Oh, this whole thing was really weird. We get we get to like more into it. It's weird, you it's guys. Weird. It is. <laughs> it's something out of a movie. Like it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Like, like this could be real. It's crazy, but I agree with you. He is, I don't know. Boring. I don't know. Yeah. I, nothing stands out about him. No. Nothing. No. Maybe he kind his of reminds height. me of, like, the dentist on Finding Nemo. <laughs> Kinda. Kinda reminds me of that guy. Honestly, I have nothing. <laughs> Just, I got nothing. I don't or Wreck-It Ralph. One of the two. Okay. <laughs> I love that movie, by the way. Oh, my God. Me too. (laughs) One of my faves. Yep. Same. Now, everyone had described Mark as being Teresa's rock in their relationship, but they would also go and say that she had been his rock. So it sounds like they had this really, like, solid relationship. We do hear more interview footage from the investigator who is interviewing Mark And they're asking if there had been any, like, infidelity or threats against the family, anything, you know, that would maybe give them a clue as to what happened and why. But Mark says no. The interview ended so Mark could then plan Teresa's funeral and grieve with their two daughters. But still, not a single clue was found to tell investigators who'd been waiting for her in her home that Sunday night when she'd returned from her trip. Cynthia asks, how had someone gone into this home, committed such a terrible crime, and left no trace evidence? She even goes on to say this could be almost considered the perfect crime. 
Right. Now, until a late night phone call comes in on a tip line leading investigators to a small town in Missouri. This came from the family friend of a man in Hillsborough, Missouri, a man by the name of Curtis Wayne Wright, who, by the way, is a five-time convicted felon. And I put in parentheses, sure as hell looks like it, because he looks like he's been in prison often. He also looks (laughs) just like Mark Seavers. Twins. Like twins. It's fucking so bizarre. It's so weird. Mark Seavers, I think, is taller. So I think there's a height difference, but like the same fucking head. Same head. Same Same face. Same face. (laughs) So weird. Same glasses. Same everything. It's so strange, you guys. It's so, so weird. Like, you know when you meet those two best friends where you swear they've got to be sisters or they've got to be brothers? Yeah. These two looked like twins. Yep. Mike Downs says that sure enough, the more they dug into this information, the more evidence came about. And it leads them to another career criminal and friend of Curtis named Jimmy Ray Rogers. I love how everybody has three names. I know. Well, it's so weird, too, that, like, okay, we're talking about a murder in Florida, and these felons are in Missouri. Right. That's a bit of a ways away. So just think about it. What if this tip never came in? They would have never caught them. Never. I don't think they would have. Way too far away. They didn't leave any evidence behind. And Mark Seavers wasn't there. Right. So it probably would have went cold. You wouldn't have been able to solve it this way. Now, Jimmy liked to call himself the Hammer. It was even all over his social media accounts. That's That was his nickname for himself. I literally rolled my eyes. Okay, why did I immediately think of The Longest Yard, the version with Adam Sandler and Goldberg, how they're constantly talking, because he's always <laughs> naked, and they're constantly talking about <laughs> yeah. him being a hammer. Okay, I didn't go there, but That's I, what can, I thought of, I but can, I'm just I can, saying. I can see that now, yeah. It's also one of my favorite movies. Now, both of these men were very much persons of interest at this point, even though both men denied being in Florida. Curtis Wayne Wright said that at first, he was sick in bed that weekend and never left his trailer, but then later said that he was actually working on a car all weekend long. So which one is it? He's changing his story already, which is not good. Right. Jimmy Ray Rogers was beside himself, barely spoke to law enforcement, but stated that he had not gone to Florida and that he didn't associate with Curtis Wayne Wright, even saying, quote, he's a nerd, end quote. Who says that as an adult? Nobody. Nobody says that as an adult. No one uses that word out of junior high. No. Honestly. It was so weird. It Such is a weird. weird thing to say. Nerd. <laughs> <laughs> now, even with the tip and their own gut feelings about these two men, the detectives did not have enough evidence to arrest them yet. David tells us that they did have digital evidence that needed to be processed and pieced together. Most notably, when they did the initial warrant on the Curtis household, there was a vehicle in the driveway with a GPS in the center console. So, of course, they're like, we're taking that. Right. We're going to look into that. Yeah. And they were hoping that he had used that GPS to get to Teresa's house. 
Our other detective, Mike, tells us that at first they thought they hit another speed bump because they were told the GPS information had been deleted. So they needed to interpret the code. Could you imagine having to be the person? They showed us like Are it's just kidding? a jumbling of letters and numbers. And it's like, how the hell? No, I read blacked like out. That? I didn't remember that part. <laughs> I know. Way too much for me. My sister writes code. Oh, my God. It sounds like so boring. Such a boring job. Oh, I wish I knew what the hell it meant. Right. What do you mean you write code? I remember. Do you remember? Back in like. I remember, but do you remember? (laughs) Back in like the late 90s when we learned at school, or maybe it was 2000s. It must have been early 2000s. When we had like computer lab and you'd go in and you would literally learn how to write code. No. Oh, my God. We did it for years. Again, I must have blacked out because I don't remember that at all. I'm not kidding. I remembered how to do the little like, like greater than and less than. And then you have to type in what you want. You have to do all these little. I'm not kidding you. We learned all about this stuff and how to make a website. Like we fucking made websites in like sixth grade. Okay, Kenzie, that was called MySpace for my generation. That was where we got code for MySpace. Oh, sure. Was sure. to like make your page. We had to, like, go find code and, like, copy-paste it and, like, do all this weird shit to it to make oh, our sure. background and everything yes. and the music. Yep. We did that, too. But this was literally before that. We would oh, just no. make up random-ass websites and oh. fucking create the entire thing with images, with words, with all this kind of stuff in, like, fifth or sixth grade. Oh. I'm like, and now I don't remember a damn thing. And I'm like, that's probably something that was really good to learn. But... Uh, yeah, you should have kept up on that. <laughs> right? Well, anyways, it took hundreds and hundreds of man hours to go through this code to recover the deleted data. And thankfully, they were able to establish a route from Curtis's residence in Hillsboro, Missouri, over to Jimmy Rogers' house, and then 1,104 miles south along Interstate 75 to Teresa's home in Bonita Springs. Hallelujah. Holy shit. I mean, talking about a smoking gun, that is a fucking smoking gun. Yeah. I mean, you can't get better evidence than that. It literally shows them exactly where they went, and they went exactly to Teresa's house. Yeah. Insane. (laughs) So crazy. One significant location was a Walmart in Florida where they were able to see Curtis and Jimmy on camera in the store purchasing suspicious items. A lockpick set, garbage bags, cleaning items, etc. Okay, wait. (laughs) They have lockpicking sets at Walmart? (laughs) clearly have everything at walmart like why my god why does someone what does that even look like and why do we need to have that what department is it in i'm assuming it's probably by the guns <laughs> they still sell guns at walmart yes they do oh <laughs> wow literally sell everything motor oil and guns <laughs> right by each other <laughs> and you can swing by and pick up your produce <laughs> and your tampons and your tampons <laughs> And new underwear if you need that. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. This is obviously significant because this places them in the same city during the time of Teresa's murder. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, I mean, if the the GPS, like, data wasn't enough, now they have them on camera. On camera, right. In their town. So they couldn't say, somebody borrowed our car. Right, right. They're there on camera. They're there. I mean, there, there's little things that they forgot about when they were committing this crime. It's like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't go to a Walmart in Florida. Maybe we should go to a Walmart in Missouri. Right. Right? I mean, that would make a little bit more sense, but 
Yeah, they didn't want to get caught on the way They're down idiots. there with all the stuff. You're right. The prosecutors and the detectives believe that these guys thought police would never come and find them in Missouri because it was so far away from Florida. And again, I don't think if they didn't get that tip, they would have never found them. I agree with How you. would they have? If they didn't leave behind any evidence, which they must have been really good with wearing gloves or whatever the hell they had on. Yeah. Well, I don't think they touched anything. Well, they left the hammer, so they obviously touched the hammer, well, right? right, yeah. So I'm assuming my thought would be they probably had hats on, masks on, whatever, or maybe not. They didn't have masks on, but maybe they had hats on to make sure that their hair didn't, you know, fall out well, the one or was something. Bald. Was Jimmy bald? Curtis. Curtis was bald. Was Jimmy wasn't, though, right? Why can I not remember what he looks like? I don't think yeah, They only flashed his picture like once, I think, in the whole documentary. But anyway, yeah. I can only assume they wore like long sleeve stuff. Yeah. Black outfits. Like things that to make sure that their skin wasn't exposed in case like a hair fell out or something. Right. Or there was a struggle. You, you yeah. wouldn't want that either. Yeah. When the detectives returned to Missouri, they decided they wanted to speak with Jimmy's girlfriend, Taylor Schamaker. Taylor started crying almost immediately and told them, I know what happened. We do see some of that interview footage of Taylor Schamacher speaking with detectives. And she tells us that, quote, I told him that I knew that he had something to do with it. And then he started asking me questions about what I knew. I said, I know you went down there to kill somebody. End quote. Jimmy replies with, yeah. Taylor goes on to ask Jimmy, did you shoot her? Jimmy says, no. Taylor says, then how did you kill her? Jimmy chuckles and says, quote, with a hammer. End quote. Oh, my God. Yeah, so a funny. chuckle. This is what I don't understand. Right. There is a connection that broke in this fucker's brain. If you can say something like that, how can you say something like that? Like, chuckle oh, and just be like, <laughs> with a hammer. Right. You brutally murdered someone you didn't know for right. no reason. Right. Some and random you, woman. Right. And you still you. haven't gotten paid. So what was the fucking point of it? Right. Is it just because you're a shitty human being and, and you have no fucking soul? Or what is the reason? And if you were Taylor, could you, would you have been able to sleep that night? Fuck no. I would have gotten my ass out of there so fucking quick. Yeah. But like, it seems like their relationship was a little strange to me. We don't obviously get to see them together, but I don't know. Now, Jimmy had confessed to her while lying in bed. And Mike says that this was huge because he had actually confessed to someone and specifically stated that they had used a hammer. And this is gold for detectives because that is consistent with the physical evidence at the scene. Taylor then took Detective David Lebed to the area where she helped Jimmy dispose of some of the evidence, which included a blue jumpsuit he had worn during the murder of Teresa. So... They did wear something that they tried to cover, obviously, their entire body yep. to make sure they left nothing behind. And they did a pretty good job with that. Now, Mike goes on to say that they were able to videotape the findings with Taylor present. And she was easily able to show them where this blue jumpsuit was. She did tell them that she had thrown these items out the window. And that's how she was able to show them where they ended up. And it took her Two seconds. Right. Two. Like, she didn't even have to look. It was literally out in the open. It wasn't covered with anything. It was, like, literally sitting there in a ball on the side of the road. Well, when they're like, yeah, I threw it out the window. Did you come to a complete fucking stop first? How did you know exactly where it was? <laughs> and it looked like it looked like it was kind of around a bend or, like, going around a bend yeah. a little bit. So maybe she remembered that it was, like, in that area. But I don't, 
I honestly don't know. It literally looked like they turned on the camera and she's like, oh, yep, there it is. Oh, yep, yep, see that? Yep, right there. That, right there. (laughs) That's where it is. Detectives now had their evidence and they had their killers. But this is just the beginning of the investigation. Curtis Wright tells authorities that he has information they want, but he wants to make a deal with them. Of course he does. Why do they always want to fucking make a deal? It's always because they know that they'll either die in prison or they may have a possibility of getting out. Because if it's first degree versus second degree, or if they can claim that they weren't actually the killer and they were just an accomplice to the murder, then they could get a lesser sentence and maybe it'd only be 25 years versus serving life in prison. True. And maybe he has a possibility of getting out. So that is the only reason that happens. But it's funny to me how quickly they come back and say, hey, 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 I have a lot of information that you want to know, but I'll only tell you if you'll make a deal with me. Right. Just don't kill people. Just don't kill people. That would be good. Then you could stay out of prison. We wouldn't have a podcast. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I would be okay with not having a podcast if people would stop murdering people. (laughs) That would be a good thing. (laughs) I'd have a lot of free time on my hands. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what would I listen to all day? What would I watch on TV anymore? (laughs) What would I think about in my free time? Now, Cynthia Ross, our prosecutor, tells us that it was a difficult decision, but they did decide to let Curtis plead to second-degree murder and receive a prison sentence of 25 years in exchange for his truthful testimony. The information that Curtis had involved a good friend from high school, Mark Seavers, and now the case was turning into a murder for hire. Hmm. Yeah, so that's where these two randos come in. They're friends with Mark Seavers. Right. And had been since, like, childhood. Right. And I'm still not believing that they're not related. Oh, my God. They have to be related. (laughs) Honestly, look up these two guys, Mark Seavers and Curtis Wainwright. Identical. It's so weird. And you have to look at them in, like, pictures where they're, like, you know, not yet convicted or not yet gone to prison. Because they probably look different now. There was a picture of them, like... There Mar- was <laughs> Mark was helping Curtis or something. They were standing by each other. It looked like a mirror image. I was literally just going to say that. <laughs> where they was like helping him like put on a tie or something at like a wedding. And I thought he was looking in the mirror. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> oh my gosh. Even before Curtis had mentioned Mark's name, detectives were already growing more suspicious of him. Especially after a second round of questioning. I feel like that second round of questioning can really tell you if that person is telling the truth or not. Oh, yeah. Because that first one is, like, right after it happens, lots of emotions, lots of theatrics, that kind of thing. The second one, though, usually happens weeks later. Yep. Maybe a week later, maybe a couple weeks later, whatever. But then you can kind of see if their demeanor is changing or yep. if their story is changing the at story. all. If it's lining up still. Or now are they adding in little bits that they didn't tell you before? And now it's like, Wait a second. He left that out the last time. Right. So that doesn't or really make sense. doesn't sound like it's super rehearsed. Right. And it's the exact same thing. Right. Exactly. David tells us that he thought Mark's emotions and sadness seemed completely fake. He had done so many different investigations where people have lost loved ones and he just didn't buy it. Yeah. Like he's seen real emotion. He's seen people really sad. And all of his just seemed like he was acting. Like, he needed to make it look like it was 
oh my god this is the worst thing ever you know yeah and i'm sure in person it was probably even more unrealistic than what you know the grainy image we gotta see oh cringe factor like a thousand yeah i think i would have been like <laughs> sir you're making me uncomfortable <laughs> you're making me want to vomit and i have so to it. leave the room <laughs> They even noticed that when they would leave the interrogation room, they felt like Mark was even playing to the cameras. So it seemed like he was even trying to be theatrical and, oh my God, throwing his hands up in the air and just being like over the top to the cameras. so strange. There was a few times I actually saw him like look at the camera. So you could tell it was very quick, you know, like he was like pacing, you know, the interrogation room. And then he'd quickly glance up at the camera and then look away. Like, as if he's just walking by and it's like, oh, you son of a bitch. Yeah. I know exactly what you're doing. And now we can all tell because that was very obvious to me. And I'm not even an investigator, so it was obvious to me. Detectives later learned from family and friends that Mark and Teresa had money and marital problems. So now it comes out. They weren't the perfect couple that Mark had tried to tell them that they were, right, each other's rocks. They had cracks. Okay, like everyone. Everyone has their issues, right? Everyone has cracks. Everyone has them. But this always seems to kind of be that stimulus to, like, murder and why people murder. Marital issues and financial issues. Because people can't really figure those things out all the time. Finances and fucking. Right. (laughs) Oh, my God. No. down to finances and fucking there we go (laughs) michael's on to tell us that they could tell there was a more sinister side to mark that he didn't want them to know about when mark was leaving the interrogation room he told detectives that he would do anything to cooperate and assist them in finding Teresa's killer but not more than a week later he stopped cooperating Like, what is he expecting? Like, if he's telling them that he's going to cooperate, that all of a sudden he just stops cooperating? Hello, that's one of the biggest red flags for them. Like, you fucking idiot. What are you doing? He's not watching true crime. That's my God. I mean, not that I'd want him to get away with it, but I just don't understand. Why be so bold to say that in the interrogation room? We hear it. It's on tape. We hear him say it. And then a week later, him stop cooperating. It's like, now you know. They're probably going to find more evidence on you. Yep. And now you don't want to talk anymore. Yep. Because you know that you might incriminate yourself and that you might get yourself more in trouble. Well, I think you can start to feel that they're closing in on you. Yes. You know what I mean? So he's yep. like, oh, you feel shit. that pressure. Yep. For sure. But prosecutors did not need his cooperation to make their case. The first test started with Jimmy's trial. Their case relied on Curtis Wainwright's testimony and whether or not the jury would believe him. Because, again, he's known for lying, and he's a five-time convicted felon. So, more than not, they're going to lie. He's probably not very good at it, though. No. Because he's been caught five times. Clearly. And convicted. But you can assume that someone that has this violent tendency and is not afraid of going to prison, clearly, because he's been to prison how many times now? Loves it. Right. That he would lie if he needed to. Sure. Absolutely. He'd try. Curtis, even on the stand, went so far to say that, quote, we came there to kill her, end quote. Now, Teresa's mother and sister were present in the courtroom every single day. Oh, Oh. my God. I can't imagine that, like, 
anxiety and like sorrow and like, oh my God, that would be tough. That would be so hard. I mean, you could tell they were struggling the whole time. Oh, big time. Curtis has asked if he was able to see where he was hitting her with the hammer and he replied with, quote, in the head, end quote. Jimmy continued to hit her after she hit the floor. Curtis goes on to say that he even had to go over to Jimmy and ask him to stop. Ew. Why? Why the overkill? I don't understand. Yeah. Why Why would you do that? I think it was honestly for him, for Jimmy, it was the thrill of like actually getting to use his tool. I, is it like adrenaline? for them or like is it something that they just like don't even realize they're doing i think it was an adrenaline thing for him and it just they just keep going because it's just it maybe doesn't seem real or like it's an out-of-body experience like i can only assume that doing something like this to someone now would have to be out of body when i picture murdering somebody with a hammer i picture not stopping after a while i can't even picture it oh come on just close your eyes Oh, honestly, we talked about this, and that <laughs> was know. last week. I know. Just, like, the sound and, like, them trying to fight back and, like... The only way oh that I could God. think of, like, as if it was, like, true self-defense of, like, how you can't stop because you're, like, oh, terrified for sure. and, like... Self-defense. If someone is coming at you and trying to hurt you, kill you, whatever. Yeah. And you have the opportunity to grab a hammer, fucking That's the only way sure. I can picture it. I don't picture just, like, walking up on someone and, like... <laughs> hammering them yeah right (laughs) yeah i just it just seems like there's so much overkill when it comes to like these people that like kill people with hammers and things of that nature and even knives too it's so much overkill but maybe it is just like a instinctual thing and you're running on adrenaline and you're running you don't even realize how many you've done after you've done it you know what i mean it's all those damn video games and you know (laughs) violence on tv (laughs) That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That and them taking away our ability to spank our children. (laughs) All of it. Oh, that still happens. That still happens at my house. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, same. (laughs) Well, I mean, it did. We're we're different. I'm kind of in that spot right now where I can't spank either of my children. One's almost 13. You don't spank a 13-year-old. Yeah. But then I have a baby, and you don't spank a baby. Right, right. So I'm in that sweet spot right now. Now, as you can all guess, it didn't take long for the jury to return a verdict. Guilty of second-degree murder with 25 years in prison. But, of course, prosecutors really wanted the brains of the operation to go down, too. They didn't want Mark Seavers to just walk away scot-free. Because, if you think about it, he didn't commit the act, but he's the one that put it all together. Charles Manson didn't commit any of the murders, either. Right. And they wouldn't have happened had it not been for Mark's... Word. Influence. Yep. Yeah. To say that this is what we're going to do. This is the plan. This is how you're going to do it. They would have never killed her. No. Had he not said something. So right. it is a thousand percent his fault too. Even though he didn't do the actual killing. Right. That's just common sense. Duh. Now, of course, evidence continued to mount, including the use of burner phones that they found being used by these three men. Now, burner phones, for those who don't know, but I feel like we all know. We should all know by this point. They're those cell phones that basically don't have, like, a plan. You just, like, buy minutes on them, and then you can toss them when you're done using them. And they don't have tracking on them either. They're not, like, owned by a person. Right, right. They're very very unique, but we hear this a lot in cases like this where they'll buy a shit ton of these burner phones and just continue to toss them out because they just don't want to be tracked at all. Right. And 
God, that's scary. It's scary that we even like have that kind of shit. I mean, we shouldn't have stuff that, especially phones. You, sh- if if you have a cell phone, we should be able to figure out what's happening and where. You know what I mean? You'd think so. We have five G fucking towers out there. Like we should be able to figure out where these people are calling from. Yeah. You know, but it's probably too much work. I'm sure it's, it's a lot of work, <laughs> a lot of coding, a lot of coding. <laughs> Gosh. Well, speaking of coding, they did have a code word. And they would, so when they were texting each other on their regular phones, when they decided that they needed to talk kind of covertly, they would use the word other to signal to the other two guys to switch over to their burner phones. Yep. So then that way they could talk openly about whatever they needed to. Yeah. And they didn't have to like be so discreet about their text messaging or hide their verbiage too much. Curtis stated that the whole plan began two months earlier when Mark attended his wedding in Missouri. David Levitt explains that two scenarios had been suggested that day. To either kill or shoot Teresa outside of her medical practice after work as if she, you know, if she was just leaving the office and then somebody came by and shot her. Like wrong place, wrong time kind of thing. Right. And he even explained that if someone were with her, that would be even better because it would throw off suspicion if there was sure. collateral damage in the whole situation. Just how evil can you actually be as a person to literally say that, oh, if someone else happens to be with her, just fucking kill her too. Yeah. Or kill that person too. Who who cares? Yeah. How can you be so callous? You don't even know that person. So you're just going to kill someone because they just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. They got no And way. it's going to help you not go to prison for the rest of your life. It's motherfucker. I know. It's motherfucker. With, of course, the second scenario being to attack her in her home. Now, when the time came to arrest Mark, they knew exactly where to find him. He was at home, but was he armed? Would he be there with the children? Yeah. Would he hurt the children they, knowing that they were closing in on him? Yeah, they figured that the kids would be there with him. So they were worried that he would hold them hostage or hurt them in some way. Yeah. Because he didn't want to leave and he didn't want to go to prison. You know what I mean? For sure. Well, and David Lebed knew that he had guns and that his behavior had been erratic. He was They were actually really, really worried. So when they get to the door, they see the girls through the window and they see Mark start to approach the door with a phone in his hand. But then he turns and like walks away from the door. So they're thinking, okay, fuck, this is going to be a fight. Right. This is exactly what we didn't want to happen. Right. So they're like, okay, we're going to give it another five seconds and then we're going to force entry. But he ended up coming back to the door and opened it up for him. He had leaned out with the phone in his hand. And when he leaned out of the door, the officers grabbed him by the wrist and arrested him. They said that he had a smirk on his face, like an ice cold smirk that basically just said he knew he had been caught. There was a photo that they had shown us of him being like, it looked like it was being let out of his house, like right after he got arrested. He had no human being emotions on his face. Like it looked like he was dead inside. That is totally a different person than we saw in that interrogation room. Right. Like how many personalities does this guy actually have? Because... He looked like he didn't give two shits about being arrested. It just was scary. It was scary. Not even like a, fuck, I'm caught kind of a reaction. No. He was just like, well, yeah, let's see how much evidence they actually have on me because I don't think they have enough. Right. You know, because he thought he had crossed all of his T's and dotted all of his I's and it was never going to get back to him. But it's like, 
but you're best friends with one of the people that killed her. Right. So what the fuck are you going to say about that? Exactly. You can't pretend that you don't know him. There's evidence that you guys have known each other for a very long time. Like, what the fuck? Right. It doesn't matter where he lives. You've known this dude for a long time. So how do you come up with a plan to say that, oh, it was all Curtis all by himself. I had nothing to do with it. Doesn't make any fucking sense. Well, the defense had a surprise twist in mind, actually, because they knew that Curtis Wayne Wright was going to be there and that he was, you know, a skilled liar and also a convicted killer. But they also decided to twist the story to make it look as if he was in love with Mark Seavers and therefore killing Teresa to get her out of the way. I literally was like, you have got to be fucking kidding me. This was the only straw they had left to pull from. The only. They had no other reason to say, hmm, there is a connection between Mark and Curtis. How do we get rid of that? Oh, wait a second. Curtis is gay and is madly in love with Mark and has always been. So now he needs to kill Teresa. He has to also get his friend Jimmy to help him with that. Yeah. Kill Teresa. Never mind his wife that he just got married to two months ago. They literally never talked about like, oh, they never had text messages or any incriminating evidence to say that like, oh, Curtis was going to come down to Florida and live with Mark. Or had been like harassing Mark. Right. And like, you know, trying to like get with him for years. It was just, I I was like, you guys are really grasping at a lot here. Who the hell is going to believe that? That is just such a far-fetched story. It doesn't make any fucking sense. Especially with all of Mark's shit. With all his, their financial issues, their marital problems, all the stuff that they have. Really? Well, really? <laughs> well, they didn't actually talk about whose infidelity there was in the marriage. What if it was Mark with Curtis? <laughs> I'm just saying. Or maybe it was Mark with Jimmy. Oh my gosh. I can't believe it. I, I can't, can't believe it at all. <laughs> I can't. I mean, I guess we could put it out there, but I, I don't believe it. No, no, no. There was there was sarcasm dripping off of all of that. <laughs> well, defense attorney Michael Mummert, which Michael Mummert. What a name. Mummert. They could have picked a different name that didn't start with an M. Like Adam or something. Like oh, I thought you meant for the documentary. <laughs> yeah. They're just going to. I'm sorry. Defense attorney Mummert. <laughs> You're, you're just not going to work. We're going to need someone. Can we? This, is there a Peterson in the house? Yes. Is there someone else? Like his parents. Like why? Michael, Michael Mummert. Mummert. That is just, it's a mouthful. Oh. Well, he says that basically they're going in with this. If Curtis can't have Mark, no one can defense. Now, reporters were also fascinated by how much the two men had looked alike, as we talked about, basically being nearly identical. We're at trial day one, and the courtroom is packed with it sort of looking like a wedding. One side of the courtroom filled with all of Teresa's family and friends, and then the other side of the courtroom filled with Mark's family and friends. Right. We hear opening statements, first coming from the prosecution. Cynthia's first priority was to make sure that everybody knew that her key witness, Curtis Wayne Wright, was hardly a model citizen. And asking them to believe him as a killer was going to be kind of tough. But she goes on to say, quote, This allows us to hear the conversations that occurred between he and Mark Seavers, 
to hear how Mark Seavers solicited, conspired, and arranged the murder of Teresa Seavers, end quote. The defense describes Mark as a very nice man, even going on to say that he's goofy and funny. And they say, quote, you're going to hear about prepaid phones. You're going to hear about divorce and infidelity, life insurance as a motive, but ultimately all of the evidence of a conspiracy. All the evidence Mr. Seaver's involvement is going to come from one man, and that's Curtis Wayne Wright, end quote. Basically saying, how credible is Curtis Wayne Wright, and are you actually going to believe him? I get their angle, but the way he said that, I'm like, you're kind of making him look really bad right now. I'm pretty sure you just admitted that he's guilty. Right, because you literally are saying exactly everything that happened. You're wanting people to believe it's a conspiracy, and your story doesn't make any fucking sense. Right. Like, your reasoning behind why Curtis killed her doesn't make any fucking sense. Right. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you did not help him at all, Mummert. Not even Mummert. <laughs> Mumbling Mummert. <laughs> We're now at trial day two. Curtis Wainwright takes the stand, and Seavers gave off the impression that he didn't care at all. He was smiling and joking with his lawyer. But that would not last long. No. It was very unprofessional. Like, I literally don't care. Like, if you actually don't give a shit, but you're also on the stand in front of a judge and a jury, and you're making yourself out to be a fucking asshole. Yeah. It's disrespectful. Like, someone is on trial for killing your wife. Now you're on the hot seat, right? Because now they're saying, nope, he's the one that actually told me to do it. And you're fucking laughing and making jokes with your lawyer. Yeah. It's not a great time to do that. No. And it just seems so out of, like, out of the norm. Why would you be acting like that? You're on display. I think it was because he's just cocky. He's just a cocky fucker and he thought he was going to get away with it. So he just played it off to be, like, no big fucking deal. But it does change quickly. Oh, yeah. It does get real pretty quick. Curtis was questioned by prosecutor Hamid Hunter. Hamid tells us that this was the biggest moment in the trial, Curtis taking the stand, specifically because these men had been good friends most of their lives. Curtis is asked, who killed Dr. Teresa Seavers? He responds with, quote, Jimmy Rogers and I physically did it, but Mark Seavers was also involved in the planning, end quote. Hamid then asks, why did you do it? Curtis responds, Quote, I was asked to do it by Mr. Seavers, end quote. Hamid even goes so far to say that he wasn't a fan of Curtis Wright because, I mean, ultimately he's a killer. So he decided to go straight at him. He wasn't going to, you know, paint him to be some perfect fucking dude. Even though he was their key witness and the entire way that they were going to form this as a murder for hire. Right. He was like, no. They, well, they didn't want to give him any compromises. And I think that was a really smart move because it makes the jury know that you know. Yep. That this person... Is a piece of shit. Yes, he is a piece of shit. But he does make a lot of sense when he's talking about this. Right. Because this is really the only logical thing that happened. There's no other reason he would have went down there to kill her. Yeah. 1,100 miles you're just going to go and drive 1,100 miles to kill your best friend's wife? Sure. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Why not? No. No. No one's doing that. And 
they did not look like rich people. Do you think they had enough gas money to get down there? Right. Think about it. Like, little things like that, honestly, I, none of it made sense except for Mark Seavers being behind all of the planning. Yeah. Curtis was then confronted about his lying earlier when he tried to say it was all Jimmy Rogers' fault. So, initially, he didn't even want to say he took part in it. Yeah. So, Hamid is now asking him to, like, fess up to those lies. To say that, yes, you did lie to us at the beginning. And please tell us why. Now, Mark's stepmother was watching in the courtroom during Curtis's testimony, and she had known Curtis since he was 12 years old. Her name was Jenny Weckelman, and she said that Curtis did a wonderful job at lying. She even called him a pathological liar. I can totally agree with that. I feel like when you have someone who has been lying most of their life, I've known people like that are like this. Oh, I can pick them out they, at any moment. Yeah, they literally, I, I think it just becomes like, You've done it so many times that you actually believe the things you say. Like, even if they are... You can't help yourself. Right. It's compulsive. Yes. It is a compulsive, like, OCD type of behavior that you just do it because you want things to sound better. You want your life to sound better. You want whatever it is, right, to be the way you think it should be. Yep. Or you envision it. Or the way you think other people think it should be. Exactly. Exactly. Now, Wright had testified that he and Seavers had made the deal to kill Teresa at Curtis's wedding in Missouri a few months earlier. Curtis on the stand says, quote, He told me that he and Teresa were having marital problems and financial problems, even considering bankruptcy, end quote. Allegedly, Mark told Curtis that the only way out of this was for her to die. Ugh, I fucking hate that. Like, I hate that that's where you have to go. Because you, you don't want to file bankruptcy? And so... The only option is to kill your fucking wife. I still want to know who had the affair. I know. They did, they did not tell us. They never tell us. I... I get the impression he did. Oh, she yeah. was a busy doctor. That's what I was thinking, too. But I even kind of thought they might have both done it. Like, they might have so. both had someone on the side. And it was not, like, a mutual thing. But they what were both Teresa doing it. Teresa had actually been with Curtis Wade, right? <laughs> fucking no. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Being with someone that looks just like your fucking husband. Right? What the hell? Ugh. I mean, I... That's not what I meant. I know what you meant, but that sounded well, like, not great. I mean, if you're going to do it, like, go big or go home. Sure, yeah. Don't just stick with your normal. Go with some strange. Right? I got what you mean. Oh, God. Oh, gosh. I do. I do love my husband. Yeah. Let's just put that on the record. I do love my husband. For the record, I still love him. <laughs> now, Curtis said he received a $600 check from Mark to cover driving expenses. <laughs> what? <laughs> just reliving it. <laughs> no, Curtis said he received a $600 check from Mark to cover driving expenses down to Florida and was promised much more would come. Okay. There is no fucking way. First of all, you show me the money. You could... N- I mean... 600 bucks. There is no promise that there's more money. $600. Oh, like, fucking $600? $600. You, you're kidding me. You're kidding that's, me. That's just to cover the gas. And mind you guys... And the lock picking. That is set. all he got before he was caught. Yeah. He only got $600, and he had to split that with Jimmy Rogers. So 300 a person... Gas. Gas. So he got nothing. He got nothing. He fucking literally got nothing. 
Curtis on the stand says, quote, he said that there was a lot of insurance that him and the kids would be well taken care of and that he had at least $100,000 to offer to have it done, end quote. Curtis then goes on to give his chilling description of how Teresa was killed. Curtis had followed her into the house, and when Teresa started to turn towards him, Curtis, quote, hit her with the hammer, end quote. Teresa had seen him before she was brutally murdered because Curtis had tripped over the dog bowl on the floor. And just think about this. Right before she died, she knew who was killing her. That is so fucking tragic. I can't imagine the thought going through your mind. Do you think she went to Mark? Do you think her mind went there? Or was it just too quick that she might not even have had, you know, to put two and two together? I mean, because you just never know how bad their relationship actually was. Was it to the point where she was already thinking like, holy shit, he might fucking kill me. But then when she sees Curtis and they've seemingly never had issues with each other and now he's trying to kill her. Yeah. I mean, just the thought of like where your mind would go in that split second. My mind went somewhere totally different. Or would it be like your whole life flashes before your eyes? Like all the things that you love and that kind of stuff. I mean, it's just, to me, it's When I heard that he tripped over the dog bowl, I immediately pictured just dog water all over the floor and how I'm being attacked by a hammer and I'm going to die in dog water. <laughs> I didn't go there. And my irritation <laughs> at the fucking dog water yeah, all yeah. over the floor. No, I can see that. I mean- Well, and the fact that he did, though, is just, like, even more, like, not comical, but it's just, like, well, you didn't plan everything out. Right. Because you messed up. Because she wasn't supposed to see who was doing this to her. Right? But she did. Right. Because you made a loud noise and you made it known that you were there. Yeah. Ugh. I just picture face down in fucking dog water. Yeah. Ugh. And it's irritating to me. Yeah. Because I don't even like stepping in it. Yeah. This whole thing is horrible. And Curtis even said that she was completely surprised by seeing him. Well, could you imagine? No. You come home, everybody else is gone, and then oh you God. hear this loud commotion in your kitchen and turn around to see somebody with a hammer. And it's someone you know. Jesus. And probably someone that you, like, care about. Ah! Uh, you know what I mean? I mean, like... What if she thought for a second it was Mark? I mean, I mean, I think she'd be able to tell the difference between her husband and him. I mean... I don't know. Maybe. For me, if it had been my husband's friend his whole life, I still care about that person. Like, if they've been in my husband's life, like, I want to care about them. Maybe not to the point of, like, you love that person, but you care about them, right? And if you've never had issues before, you're probably thinking, like, what the fuck is going on here? Yeah. Why is he here? Yeah. Why is this happening? Yeah. I, I just, I keep thinking, like, the questions I would think to myself. I, Who's behind this? I would almost Why hope that it would go so fast that you wouldn't even have the time. Yeah, I would hope to. And and hopefully that's how it was because you just don't want to have to deal with the pain and like the trauma of going through something like that. Yeah. Horrible. Curtis was then asked if she fought for her life and he said, quote, yes, I never in a million years envisioned beating her to death with a hammer, end quote. We're now at trial day three, and on cross-examination, Mark's lawyer tried to push a theory about Curtis's sexual orientation, but the judge wouldn't allow it. Thank God. on him. Thank fucking God. Because he knew. He's like, really? That's where you're going? That's where you're going to go? That's, that, really? That's the best thing you could have thought of, honestly? No. Now, Michael Mummert says that he wasn't happy that he wasn't allowed to ask questions about Curtis's sexual orientation because he really thought 
that would tell the story about why this murder occurred. He stated he sensed some, quote, possessiveness or intimacy in the air. What? Yeah, um, I don't understand that at all. Honestly, this, I feel like he's just, he's spewing bullshit. I, I don't believe anything he says. You did not feel possessiveness and intimacy in the air. When? When did you feel that? When he was on the stand? What are you talking about, Mummert? Like, fuck. It didn't make sense. Michael's theory was that when Mark went to Curtis's wedding, Curtis just went off the rails and had had enough. Mark had the doctor wife, beautiful kids, great home in Florida. Why did Mark get to have it all? He believed Curtis's anger and love for Mark fueled the fire for him to decide to kill Teresa. At his own fucking wedding? (laughs) At his own wedding. It's not like he went to Mark's wedding and had these thoughts. No, this is Curtis's wedding. This is his wedding. (laughs) We all know he was so shit-faced, he couldn't have cared less. No. Again, this is so out of left field. None of this fucking happened. This is not true. Judge Bruce Kyle wasn't believing any of it, and Mark's lawyer had to change the angle of his cross-examination. He decided to challenge Curtis on the claim that Mark promised to give him some large sum of money. Wouldn't he have just let Curtis take the money that was in the safe in the Seavers' home? Michael Mummert also claimed that Curtis knew about the $50,000 that was in the safe in the house, but Curtis stated he only found that out after the fact, not before. So after he had killed Teresa, then he found out that there was $50,000, and Mark Seavers only gave his ass $600 in a check to split with Jimmy Rogers. In a check! (laughs) Fuck. Oh my god. <laughs> this dude has 50k in a fucking safe and he gives him 600 bucks to kill his wife. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Curtis stuck by his guns and said that their original agreement was that he would be paid after the life insurance paid out Mark Seavers. Michael Mummert explains that he doesn't believe Mark ever told Curtis to kill his wife. Teresa was worth more alive than dead to Mark. Why would he want to kill her? As Mark watched Curtis testify, all his smiling and jokes turned to tears and grief. Was it real or just a performance? Thousand percent. We already know that. Yes. Because again, remember, he was joking and laughing at the beginning. And now all of a sudden he's tears and I don't see tears. Nope. I see, you know, like the... Super gross Yes. Like the fake, there's no tears. It's just... I hate it. I hate it. Yeah. Like a giant bald baby. (laughs) Yuck. Yuck. No. No, our prosecutors... Nothing against babies or bald men. (laughs) But together, no. 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 Now, our prosecutor, Cynthia Ross, tells us that Mark wasn't a grieving husband. He was just a master manipulator that could turn on the tears when he needed to. They hoped the jury could see through those tears and know that it was all a show. But some of the jurors were in tears as well. I mean, it had to have been an emotional courtroom. And remember, they're seeing footage Footage. and actual images of Teresa. Yeah. That is again something I don't know if I could I could see. Yeah. Because this person doesn't look like they used to look like. Right. They look completely different. I think and if it's I didn't horrifying. know them, I'd be able to watch. 
but not oh if I Oh, my God. I don't know. But thinking, too, that she's got two young girls, you know? Yes, that they're missing out on a mother, yeah. you know, and potentially a father now, right. right? Like, he potentially hurt these kids so much throughout the rest of their life because they're young. Yeah, they're young. Babies still. Like, not even, like, I, what are they, like? Elementary kids? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. So young and so, so young. sad. We're now on trial day nine, closing arguments. And we hear from prosecution first. Hamid Hunter says, quote, The evidence has shown that Mark Seavers hired Curtis Wayne Wright, his best friend, to kill his wife. An unconscionable act in light of that sacred contract. So Mr. Wright is a felon. He's an admitted liar. He's a killer. By himself, there's no reason any reasonable person should believe a word he says. But he's corroborated by evidence. I want you to consider asking why. She is not a captain of industry. She is not a politician. She's a medical doctor and a mother of two and a wife. And now she's dead. End quote. Closing arguments from the defense, Michael Mummert. Quote, You've now heard all of the evidence and the one question no one's answered. Why? Why is Teresa Seavers dead? The best answer we can give you is she is dead because Curtis Wainwright killed her. And without Mr. Wright, there is no case in the crime scene itself. Those photos, they're hard to look at, but that crime scene is anger and it's violence and it's rage and it's hate and it's not murder for money. Do you trust Curtis Wainwright? The jury began deliberations just before lunchtime that day. Cynthia echoes what a lot of prosecutors have said in mm-hmm. the many documentaries. And we all, yes, we all know. That they always hope it'll be fast because of the anxiety of waiting for that verdict. Michael Mummert says, we did everything that we could and everything we reasonably could. So he's just like, whatever is, is. Whatever the outcome is, we did the best we could. Right. Only four hours later, the judge calls everyone back into court for the reading of the verdict. Ooh, that's short. It was short. <laughs> what they found was count one, first degree murder, guilty. Count two, for conspiracy, guilty. This all occurred on December 4th of 2019. And while the reading of the verdict was happening, Mark Seavers stood stoic. Mm-hmm. But now... What would his punishment be? The prosecution recommended the death penalty. Remember, we're in Florida. Yeah. For the Florida death penalty law, this means that the jury would have to find Mark guilty of murder for financial gain or in a cold, calculated manner or both. Right. I say both, but. Right. <laughs> and right. And the jury also had to consider victim impact statements. So we haven't yes. even done that yet. Right. We hear from Teresa's mother, Mary Ann Groves, and she says that the biggest loss falls upon Teresa's two daughters, whom Teresa loved with all of her heart, stating that these two girls have been robbed of their remarkable mother, their home, their pets, their possessions, their friends, and their family. She says that Teresa will not be able to love and guide them. She won't be there when they graduate high school or when they need their mother to kiss away tears from their first heartbreak. She says that we have lost our Teresa, the light of our lives, the star of our family, who loved us all so fiercely, 
and it has been hard for all of us to go on with our daily lives. She says that the void is unimaginable, and she was their strength, their inspiration, and their caretaker. Now, remember, in the case of death penalty, only one juror need oppose that right. for it to not go through. Correct. But the jury was back in only three hours. The first question, was the murder committed for financial gain? The jurors did unanimously vote no. It was not done for financial reasons. It was basically meaning that he wasn't going to get a bunch of money out of it. Sure. The second question about it being a cold, calculated murder, they all agreed, yes, it had been. Hell yeah. Right? Now the jury unanimously decide that Mark Seavers should be sentenced to death. And the judge had the power to overrule that decision. And he reveals that the eldest daughter had actually written a letter asking that her father's life be spared. Oh, that makes me so sad for her. It does make me sad, As too. a judge, I think that would be probably the hardest thing. It would be hard. To have a jury telling you that, yes, we believe that this person should be put to death. But then that person who you're about to put to death has kids right. that are now asking you and pleading you to spare his life. Oh, pulling at the heartstrings. Oh my gosh. Because now they, he's all they have. Yeah. Now, if they want to have a relationship, you know, they don't know. But if he's gone too, then they have no one. Right. And <sighs> they don't have that option. Oh, it's so sad. Well, and Michael Mummert actually says that essentially the girls did not want a relationship with their father. But in the future, if they did, they needed him to be alive. Right. Yeah. They, yeah otherwise, they, they couldn't. They didn't even have the option. But at this point, the court then hears from Mark Seavers, acting very defiant and yeah. without remorse. Almost pissed off a little bit. Yeah. Slightly. Slightly. Not a ton, but I felt like he was very upset that he was found guilty. Yep. You know, he was just, he was very sad about his own life. Yep. Not so much Teresa's, but like, he was pissed about it. So he needed to like get it out in the best way possible for the judge that sounded the best right so he goes on to say quote although the jury found me guilty i am innocent of all charges as i've maintained since this heinous crime took place i love my wife Teresa and her two daughters josie and carmy with all my heart our girls have tragically lost their mommy and now they're about to lose their daddy as well therefore i respectfully ask the court for life as not to compound their loss and suffering I am grateful, however, that the court can only determine my fate on earth when my soul is in God's hands and God knows the truth. Although I cannot feel remorse for something I had nothing to do with, I am deeply saddened and forever heartbroken, to say the very least, that Teresa was taken from us. Teresa is my soulmate. I will miss her and cherish her memories until we are reunited in heaven. Until then... I will fight this wrongful conviction until I am proven innocent and set free to rejoin my family. End quote. Um, I hate that he brings up God. They always do. I hate that. They always do. I hate that do. he called himself daddy and refers to her as mommy because I feel like all that did was try to play up. Yeah. No. Yeah. You stopped being a daddy when you fucking even talked about wanting your wife killed. 
And I hate how he talks about how Teresa's his soulmate and how they're going to reunite in heaven. It's like, Ew. fuck off. Yeah, no. Fuck all the she way off. She wants nothing to do with Absolutely you. Absolutely not. Cynthia Ross says, Mark Seavers was not up there crying for Teresa. Mark Seavers was crying for Mark Seavers. Thousand percent. She said he hadn't shed a single tear for Teresa through the entire trial. Oh, no. It was all for his own reasoning that he wasn't going to have a life anymore and he was going to be put away. It's like, don't fucking kill your wife. Don't, How about that? Don't fucking kill your wife. It's very simple. Yeah. Very easy to not go to prison for murder. Just don't kill your wife. <laughs> right. Now, although his children had wanted his life spared, the jury's decision was upheld and the judge sentenced Mark Seavers to death. David Lebed goes on to say that he feels terrible for the girls because their father had orphaned them by having their mother killed and then just being the piece of shit that he is. I right? know. When he said the word orphaned, I'm like, oh my God. When you when you actually put those words to it, that's exactly what they do. Yeah, they're orphans. When you have children with someone and you kill your spouse and you get caught. They are now orphaned. Where the hell are they going to go? Especially in a death penalty state where you are sentenced to death. Right. They oh literally will be. Oh gosh, it's so tragic. Michael Mummart maintains that Mark did not commit an act of violence. He says that Mark is the only person in Florida's death row who never committed an act of violence. Okay. And who gives a shit? Right. He did it. He did it. So that's all that matters. Carmine Marcino says that to hear the judge say death penalty basically was like a light in his day. Yeah. He says justice was served and he got what he deserved. Absolutely. The last thing we hear in this documentary is Judge Bruce Kyle speaking to the court and more specifically Mark Seavers. And he says, quote, I judge people's actions. I don't judge people's souls. And if I am wrong... Hopefully, God have mercy on us both. End quote. And that is the end of this episode. Yet another crazy episode from Killer Cases. Yeah. I'm, I like that we have these like three different series that we're watching. Me I too. feel like they're all a little different from one another. For sure. And I would say that they're all ones that we haven't heard of. However, as I'm watching this one and taking notes, I'm like, I literally just heard about this. Yeah, I feel like I watched something on this, maybe on like a Dateline or a 2020 or something. I heard a podcast on it. I can't, uh, maybe even a podcast. I can't remember, but it was definitely something because as I started to see like her picture pop up and things like that, she looked very familiar to me. And that's why I thought I had watched something because I like vividly remember that, but who knows? A lot of it is kind of meshes together after a while. Right. Catch us next time when we cover another episode from the series Accused called One Punch Assault, where a young man witnesses a vicious attack and jumps in to help by throwing a punch. Should he be sentenced for his role in this act? Stay tuned to find out. Mm. As always, thanks for all your continued support. It's been a very busy time in our lives, and we really hope we can start releasing more episodes soon. 
we also are wanting to create some merch too so throw some ideas at us yeah if you want to follow us on our social media platforms you can find us on twitter at share crime pod instagram at share underscore crime underscore podcast we're on tiktok at share crime podcast and our personal email inbox requests at share crime podcast.com in case you didn't know this is share crime podcast yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know how many times we need to say it <laughs> like a thousand have a wonderful christmas and holiday season and we will all see you in the new year stay safe stay sane and remember never run with scissors bye guys bye